قام قام لاما قام لاما A week or two ago, we headed to the Shumei demonstration farm in Yatesbury, Wiltshire, to learn all about natural agriculture. We're interested in the farming, but I think first we need to take a step back and ask, what, what is Shumei? Well, it's part of a spiritual movement which started in Japan about 150 years ago, and they aim, in their own words, to advance health, happiness and harmony through spiritual health and appreciation of art and beauty and natural agriculture. So natural agriculture means that nature already has everything it needs. The soil is perfect, the earth is perfect. Natural agriculture is based on three principles. One is the sort of do nothing, so no fertilizers, no animal manure, etc. The second one is seed saving, so harvesting the seeds from a particular location with a particular crop, saving them for the next year and reusing exactly the same seeds on the same plot of land. Um, and the third, third one kind of linked to that is the continuous cropping. Um, so that it's this idea that the seed and the soil and the specific point of land really form this amazing relationship which makes for a very hardy, strong crop that's able to deal with pests and anything that comes its way. And it, what, there was a lot of really excellent produce on sale, wasn't there? Like It was amazing. It was literally amazing. It, it like looked and tasted and it kept in the fridge for ages. That's one of the things that they say is that their produce is actually much stronger, the quality. What makes natural agriculture different from other agricultural practices is that it redefines that behaviour of living off the land. It's necessary that we take to survive, but natural agriculture balances that act with gratitude, humility and compassion. This very conscious interaction with the natural world is essentially a practice of respect and one that informs all aspects of life. Back to Shumei, Shinya is the lead farmer and he took us back to 2012, a year that some of you may remember was a particularly difficult year for growing tomatoes. Our tomato uh, under the polytunnel uh, got a fit attack and uh, I planted 250 tomato under the polytunnel and uh, all tomato got a fit. I counted how many aphids are there, and uh, uh, there are 200 to 5 aphids in one stem. And uh, I asked the organic farmer how to deal with these aphids. The, he said, uh, I have to do spray uh, at least five times, otherwise I lose all the tomatoes. But the natural agriculture doesn't use spray. The, what I did is uh, I spoke to soil. What I said is uh, uh, please help tomato. The, I also uh, spoke to tomato. 
Thank you so much for tomato growing even this cold weather. And also tomato, please produce tomato to heal people. I spoke to them every day for two weeks. And two weeks later, suddenly all effects aphids had disappeared, disappeared. And then I haven't lose even one tomato. Tomato produce many tomatoes. Do you talk to all of the crops regularly or is it just when, just when there's a problem? Yeah, every day I talk to them, but not a voice in my mind, but appreciation. I just thank you, potato, tomato, pumpkin like that. They every day appreciate appreciate for soil and vegetable and earth and environment. Yes. Nigel, this goes against even what committed organic farmers might believe in. Like as a farmer, what do you make of this? I think my natural reaction would be um, a degree of scepticism. Certainly, um, my parents would be very sceptical of this. I'm quite open-minded in terms of natural farming and more agro ecological solutions um, but by the same token my mum does talk to animals an awful lot and we have quite happy livestock so I think there's room for everything. So when you say your mum communicates with the animals what do you mean? Well she, she kind of talks to them I mean she you know has quite a, a special relationship in terms of you know she'll as if you would talk to, I don't know, your pet, for example. Mum mm -hmm. will communicate with our sheep and mm -hmm. our cattle. And previously when we had pigs, you know, she would talk to them. And then they're kind of part of the family almost. Mm -hmm. And I think that definitely probably has an impact on, you know, their well-being. You know? Sure. Al albeit, um, you know, it, it does sound a bit sort of spiritual or, you know, like not very commercial but actually I think it can have an impact on that sort of stuff and obviously it's just a nice place to be and if you're in tune with your environment and surroundings and, and livestock I think there's a lot to be said for that. Mm, definitely. Well we'll get we'll get some of the animals on next month's farm maybe if you'll let us come <laughs> down with a microphone. Absolutely. <laughs> or your mum can interpret. <laughs> it's true she, she does communicate I mean seemingly she has a, a very you know, special way with the, with the animals. So, yeah. Cool. Good. Yeah. Okay, so it does all seem a bit doolally. Um, I'm still not sure if I think the aphids left because Shinya spoke to the plants. I'm not sure he even believes that. There could have been a whole host of other reasons why. But I do think that talking to the plants and the land shows an incredible kinship with what he's growing. Um, that very intense observation of the relationships between things almost as if every seed he plants is a great friend. This connection is one of the key principles of natural agriculture, and I do think that kind of communication or understanding with your produce can only be a good thing, kind of like Nigel's mom, really. And it does seem to work. I mean, we tried some of the produce, and to be honest, I'm not sure if I've ever snapped such a tart, crisp, fragrant carrot between my teeth. <laughs> is this all the evidence we need? Let's hear from Tsuya, who also lives on the farm. In 2010, we harvested 160 kilo potatoes. 
uh, next year the same potato, same, same field, harvested 170. But 2012, we had a blight attack. Senior, the main farmer, asked his friend, you know, the professional organic farmer, how to cope with this situation. And the advice was to cut all the green tops and harvest as soon as possible. And he followed this advice. And it was one month earlier than normal harvesting time. So potatoes were small. The amount dropped in to 100 kilo. Uh, next year, Bright came back. But Senior wanted to see how his potato with this continuous cropping and seed saving, how they can cope with this disease. So he left it and waited until the usual harvesting time and harvested. But the uh, blight didn't go away, so all leaves were kind of dried and died. But generally, I think organic farmers say blight disease will reach to the tuber, I mean the potato fruit, and ruin the potato. Shinya wanted to see if his potato can resist. Harvested, the amount was 180, and all the potato, we wouldn't say all, but almost all potatoes were fine and tasty. So the soil gets to know how to grow potatoes more, and the seeds get more suitable to the conditions. They have demo farms in Zambia, Brazil, California, and apparently people have been doing it continuously for more than 20 years in Japan, particularly with rice. And there were examples of this on a, on a really quite large scale. There was another example, yet another farm we've been to, that really had just so many people of different ages and different backgrounds, all working on the farm, but also hanging out on the farm, yeah. um, keen to like really show us what they were doing and talk mm. to us. And Yeah, I really like this idea of, like, because in urban settings, we're kind of having a revival of the libraries being the centre, the core of the community, like it's an education base, maybe an internet access base, all sorts of different things that face the library. And then I kind of feel like the farm is sort of becoming the champion of that in the countryside. Sort of the hub of the countryside almost. Yeah. It's great. As opposed to the pub. Or maybe both. Maybe both. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't. I'm, I'm an American. I'm not used to the pub. You can always have a tap room on your farm if you have uh, a yes. microbrewery as well. So there's always there's options. That's what we need. <laughs> We think it's exciting to see the countryside as part of our lives, not just the machine which produces for us from afar, not just a place to go for a walk, but a place that we are on, in, beside, and something we have a two-way relationship and understanding with. As we've heard, we're pushing this idea quite far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Tom O'Kane certainly lives with this philosophy. He's an experienced biodynamic farmer, and he's helped run CSAs all over. And in April, he started up his own on the Gower in Swansea. It's called Kai Tam. They're part of the Gower Power Co-op, and his field is like this Welsh rainforest. It's surrounded by ancient oaks, and low, rain-filled clouds roll in over the hills from the sea. It, I can't, it really is a very special place, and quite beautiful. He's 
his densely planted fruit, veg, and flowers. And they like flow along the contours of the hillside. So it's a really successful CSA. They're already delivering 50 boxes a week. But the Kaiten CSA is particularly economically sustainable because Tom really has made the field a place to grow the community, including a school's pizza project. And we should say that there's a special guest correspondent with you here, Abby. Oh yeah, my dad came along. <laughs> He's a, a farmer in Chile. Yeah. This is our little fashion show. Yeah. Uh, some parents are growing herbs as well. And then in September, October, we harvest everything. We're going to take the wheat to a local water mill and like grind it with the stones there. And then they'll make their own sort of pizza dough. And then we've got two wood-fired ovens on trailers coming to the school. And they're going to fire up the ovens and cook pizzas for the whole school with all the ingredients the kids have put together. So good. And, um, and so this is the wheat. Yeah, so this is... I grew an extra bed of wheat because they only had a small plot in school. So we just thought we'd grow an extra bed here in case we need it. It gives us sort of outlets for our produce, connects us to the local community, raises awareness about local food. And then, so I suppose that's the educational element. I suppose on that educational side as well, we've got a trainee who's been with us this year. And so that's, that's gone really well. And we're going to take a second trainee next year and hopefully keep her on. So we'll be like three of us here. And then the other side of it is just the social side of it. We work with lots of groups. We've been working with a single young homeless project, a mental health group, uh, long-term unemployed, this Swansea City Football Club community trust who just gather up young people and bring them here to come and work. We might have like 25 young people here for the day or for half a day. And they, they're generally, generally really motivated and really happy. If you've got like work that you know they're going to enjoy or they, you, they're going to be able to basically do it and it's yeah then then they'll engage and yeah they have a really good time and it's really good fun do you know it like it really brings life to the place it's kind of like as far as community that community supported element they're not investing in the project financially and taking produce from here but they're coming in the field doing a lot of work and there's just a lot of fun and banter and it kind of just brings the whole place to life <laughs> so it's kind of yeah it makes it work really so I was particularly interested in the volunteer he was working with, and so I delved a little deeper. Well, Lizzie's been great. You know, she came from, she came from being office-based. She was working for a housing association, and she was, like, fed up with it, wanted to do something different. And we'd advertised that post, and we had 22 people apply. And, like, a lot of them had degrees and a lot of experience, and they just wanted to do something really different. And we interviewed five. Our interview that we did, we... Um, it was sort of partly discussion and partly we just went out and we weeded things and actually we set up a task in the field next door over a really sort of dodgy old wobbly barbed wire fence yeah. so we could see, you know, just practically how's this person going to deal with getting over this old fence and it was really interesting to see the difference of how the, the different people dealt with getting over the fence mm. and Lizzie <laughs> kind of just leapt over it like a gazelle <laughs> and we thought, right, Lizzie's the one for the job when she came here, what is it? How does it work? Oh, well, she works. She's basically paid... The government pay her for oh, six okay. months. Okay. And she works four days a week, basically doing anything. It's kind of in a position as a trainee, but she kind of just does everything. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And to the point when, you know, she's only been here... What, where? April, May, June. 
well, it's like five, this is her fifth month, mm. but I'm going to go away now for a week and I know, I feel totally confident that she'll just sort everything out for the week, which is, Fabulous. you know, she's she's really good, yeah. Gee, that's amazing. That's yeah. really a great find. Yeah. 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 So what's that government scheme called? It's called Jobs Growth Wales. Oh. I don't know if there's an equivalent in England. Okay. And they pay, yeah, they basically get people who are either long-term unemployed or are in sort of very low-paid jobs who want to do something. And you have to be under 24. Okay. Uh, 24 or under, and uh, yeah, just give them an opportunity and to try something she different. Living? She's she's living locally. Okay. She's yeah, she's okay. living really nearby. Okay. That was Abby speaking to Tom O'Kane. Nigel, have you thought about this sort of thing for your farm? Do you think this kind of like extra non-farming stuff is important? I definitely think um, it's really valuable, and if you can start to involve the local community in your farm that that can really um, bring a lot of benefits in terms of additional layers of income and just, I think, in terms of food education, um, getting people onto the farm, working with their hands, the soil, I think it's so important. Is it like a um, economic drive to get to do the education stuff and to get people interested in the farm and what you're doing? Or do you have a kind of inbuilt need to communicate what you do for me personally i think uh having like lived in london for like 10 years i'm quite a social person so i think it's that part of that sort of transition period of like moving back to the farm just working with my parents i find it difficult so i'm really keen to get more people involved and work in a team of people and that obviously a community sort of fits the bill quite nicely um but i also think a lot of farmers could potentially benefit financially from it. And, and at a time when farming prices are at all-time lows, I think, you know, involving the community, and if that can mean that farms can earn additional streams of income, I think that's hugely valuable. Yeah, I think as Tom found, it should be a core part of the business. It's like yeah. the growing the food isn't just to feed people, it's also to have people have, like, a nice day out or educate people, and that, that can be equally part of being a small-scale farmer and make it a sustainable business. Yeah, I agree. It's time for Nigel to jump on Veronica and uh, head off. Where's the next stop on your tour? So this um, particular farm was uh, in a slightly different setting. It it was um, next to Temple Mead Station in Bristol. So very much an urban um, area. And uh, yeah, essentially there's a, a, a series of polytunnels um, and containers where Steve Glover and his team of growers work um, in growing some herbs and high value salads. Um, and it's 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 essentially a social enterprise. Um, so obviously, what they're doing is they are um, growing salads and herbs and supplying local restaurants in Bristol. Uh, but it's also there's also a real sort of positive social impact of this work because Steve works with um, ex drug addicts, ex kind of alcohol alcohol addicts. I mean, these these people are sort of obviously going through this huge change and they're actually using growing as a way to kind of focus on something really positive. And the name of the social enterprise is The Seven Project. 
grow food and we sell food. Yeah. That's what uh, urban farming is. It isn't harvesting grant fund applications. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and so like the it, it the anything that isn't based on business skews the the model. Yeah. Uh, but but strong business generates social outcomes for us. So we yeah. our our apprentices get to learn about customer relationships, invoicing, stock control, um, labelling, marketing, branding, all that stuff that you actually really need to learn. They yeah, learn, yeah, if you they can learn, learn that. your own business well, afterwards. What, what, yeah. we, what we say to them is that when you've done your apprenticeship, then we'll give you some bets and polytunnels, okay. and then we'll buy the produce from you. Got you. So that so it's like a starter farm sort of program. Really, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, and because what we want to demonstrate is that it, it's possible. You don't need loads of money skewing the system. And, and, yeah. and I, I, when I was on Radio Four, I said a lot of people think that if you, to be a farmer, you've got to be like Emmerdale. Yeah, and it isn't like that. Have all the gear and all that yeah, sort of stuff. Sheds and all yeah, that yeah. stuff, and oh, a hundred thousand pounds to spend on the uh, combine harvester or whatever it is they use. I, that's a perception, but that's a perception like the Farmers Weekly and all the farming like press it. give, you they know? They love it. Because it's agribusiness, big money yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and but what that does is it keeps people out of their business, you know, to, that it, it, it's a barrier. I would say I started with nothing, two and a half thousand pounds, one polytunnel, no experience of growing food, didn't know Bristol, I lived in Spain before, I didn't have any customers, I didn't know I didn't know anything about growing food at all, and yeah. just through just going basically, oh, what get seeds put in the ground, make sure they're watered, weed. Do you know what I mean? It's now turned into a business that we started with two and a half thousand pound four and a half years ago, and we take three thousand pound a week these days. You know, I don't know. I mean, I used to sell drugs for a living. I mean, I used to smuggle pop back in and sell it. Yeah. And uh, so good I living, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> if you get it right. Risky. Yeah. But 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 the the scene around growing food yeah. is not dissimilar from that. Yeah. Do you know, it really yeah, yeah. isn't, oh, you don't want to be using this stuff, it's shit, you want to be using mine, oh, come on, let's, you've been buying it off him, or oh, you don't want to do that, come yeah. buy it off me. All that stuff goes on, which, do you know, for me, it's quite entertaining. Yeah. Um, our apprentices call us the salad mafia. Oh, really? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, it is funny. But, uh, yeah, so it's all, it's all entertainment, mate. Yeah. It's yeah. like, what, where would you go to get a job in horticulture in, yeah. in this town? You know what I mean? Mm. Where would you go? There isn't anywhere. There's no jobs in horticulture. Yeah. You might get a job as a landscape gardener, which is a sad indictment of society, isn't it? Where you can yeah, get a job as a landscape gardener, but you couldn't get a job growing food. Growing food, yeah, that actually provides a real purpose, yeah. 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 But, uh, it's you know, but then this is the whole back to the Jonathan Porritt thing. It's, it's like, it's fashion, and fashion is dangerous because it isn't real. It's just you know it's like photoshopping reality isn't it you know yeah, yeah. Making, making urban food production uh, fashionable is like photoshopping of reality do you think this this trend or this fashion of people trying to you know buy more direct or support like local do you think that's going to grow and grow and that will you know yeah, su- support businesses so. yeah, like your I own I, yeah. I seriously I think that is I mean if you think about it right in order to be able to sell food to that type of person all you have to say is not GMO and I don't use any pesticides and herbicides. Yeah. To me, that was just completely normal to do that, anyways. Do you yeah, know yeah, what I mean? yeah. So, um, and I think in, in 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 years, I think in years to come, not very many years to come, maybe in a, in you know in the next couple of years, non-GMO food is going to be seriously big business. Yeah. Do you know? I really do think so. I think there's, which and 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 then then the um, I mean then it gets down to ethics, doesn't it? And our ethical position would be. It is not an elitist thing 
you know what I mean? Everybody food should shouldn't be elitist. It shouldn't just be like the yeah, privileged, like 10, 20% yeah, yeah. that can go to farmers markets yeah. or get neighborhood food box mm. or something like that, you know? But, but if we're training people to grow food, then it does make it accessible just by the action of actually doing it. You know, so yeah. I, I think, you know, I think it's good. I, it's a great industry to be involved in. Lastly this month, we're going to hear from our farm friend, Robert Simpson, about their community-used, but also community-built, Cobb pizza oven. A great big thing that stands about six feet high, and it's massive, it must, you know, it's got about two or three tonnes of material in it. It's on a great big stone drum, a gabion, that we filled with rubble. We had someone who got specialist knowledge and experience in building Cobb ovens, they'd done it in the States, he came over Sid, and he sort of led us through building this thing and then we had to build a shelter a bit like this a pole a pole pole shelter over to keep the rain off the cob oven when we'd finished it and we built it in a weekend we had about five to ten people each all the time there helping to build it and lots of people puddling all the cob and putting the straw on the cob and the sand and the clay and everything together to make this wonderful material which is just you know I mean, it's marvellous to build with a cob. And we have the most amazing pizzas there now. Every other weekend on the Saturday, we have a harvest day, and we just have these amazing pizzas with, with goo made from products from the garden. It's just wonderful. And it's become, it's completely transformed the, the, you know, the social dynamics of the, of the CSA. As people, you know, the fire is such a sort of... So we've got people who make the pizzas and have become terribly keen about making the pasta, you know, for it, and the goo and the zugo and all this. And, um, you put your hand on the outside when this thing is 400 inside, and it's cold. <laughs> and it's the most. And then you can just bake bread as it cools down. You know, you get all the ash out after the superheat of the pizza oven. You get it down to about 200, and you can start baking bread. And you just so we made a clay door. I, I did some pottery, so I made a clay door for, the, and they've got it fits in. And it's sealed it. You've got to seal it. You take the fire. When you're doing the pizzas, you keep the fire in. But when you do the bread, you have the fire out and it's all cooled down a bit. Because you're not at this super heat of 400 degrees. But we can cook a pizza on that in about one minute. Thanks, Robert. Okay, remember, we're very keen to hear your stories from the fields. How things are growing, what you're looking forward to. Maybe you've been to some good events or come across interesting ways to get people involved in the farm. Please do send these through. We want to make this your show, so please do be a part of it. Or let us know what you liked or what you didn't. We've had a lot of feedback already, and we really do appreciate this. Um, hopefully we're going to put something on our Facebook page about how you, so a few questions you can answer to make it easier to submit your own stuff. Not hopefully, definitely. Sorry, definitely, Joe. Definitely. We're on Instagram and Twitter as Farmerama with a double underscore. And we're Farmerama Radio on Facebook. And, exciting news, we, we're now on iTunes. <laughs> official. We're official. We've made it, guys. <laughs> and we'll be back next month with more stories from the farm. We're leaving you now with some sound Xinyan that our new Japanese friends made. It was an added treat at their farm open day. And a great example of how to drum up the local community. Bye. Bye. Bye.